good to be with you guys today. Welcome. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We have been uh, very gloomy lately in our weather patterns. Today, we've tried to co-opt our sermon series with the weather. So the last three, now today comes the sunshine. We see it more clearly than ever. That's not true. Uh, I wish it was. We have had uh, an amazing kind of winter. It's been very cold, so this day of sunshine is really good. If you remember last week, our title of our sermon was Seeing Gradually, and the one before that was Spiritual Anesthesia. And now that we're, I've, I've kind of finished Mark 8, we're going to finish it today, I'm looking back at these three sermons and saying, boy, these three really flesh out a, an important thought, and they kind of hang together. So I'm going to go back and note in our website those sermons and put them as part one, part two, and part three. If you've missed any, I encourage you to go back. Danny's got a system now where usually by the time you get home from this service, it'll be on the website. So it's really nice. But they flow together. And so today comes even more, if you will, sight, a brighter light, and we've progressed for two weeks to get to this point. That first one, if you remember with me, on spiritual sleepiness, really focused on the way that Jesus was telling the disciples, uh, it, it kind of reading between the lines, you guys are still chained to idols. And by being idolatrous, you cannot see God. And so that was the main focus there. Wow, sometimes Jesus is super confusing. Perhaps it's because our hearts are attached to something else. And when your heart is clinging to something other than God, you can't see God. Well, that was the first week in Mark 8, as Mark is bringing to a very pinnacle moment the transformation of these disciples. He's helping us to see it. Then last week on Mother's Day, we talked about how sometimes we mistake our meeting Jesus or getting saved as something that eradicates idolatry altogether once and for all, and now we're good to go. We just have to tweak some behavior. Last week, we really honed in on that idea of these disciples are walking next to the incarnate God, and they have a really difficult time seeing him. And even in Mark 8, where, Jesus, or, sorry, where Peter gives this bold statement, you are the Messiah, we learn from reading carefully that he still doesn't get it. And Jesus tells him to be quiet. So we're kind of coming out of sleepiness. We're getting it and seeing him slowly. And then today Jesus drops a statement that is so profoundly important for the Christian life. We're just going to spend this morning looking at the last few verses of Mark chapter 8. So I hope that you, through these three weeks, that the idea of Mark chapter 8 has sort of seared into your mind, and I would very much encourage you to go back and continue reading this chapter in the context of the whole story. Right at the end, last week, of our text, you remember that Jesus says, uh, don't tell anybody what you just said, Peter. And what had Peter just said? He had said, you're the Messiah. And we say, well, what in the world? Wouldn't Jesus want people to know that he was the Messiah? Why would he tell, why would he tell Peter uh, to not talk like that to anybody? Well, I think it's a little bit like saying this. I, I do believe, I do believe in Jesus. But thinking, thinking that Jesus is actually a different kind of person than what the Bible is, what the Bible says he is. So we say, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm so about Jesus. But if in our mind Jesus was a, a lizard who likes to eat Wisconsin cheese, we would probably say, it's awesome that you believe in Jesus. I'm glad you love him. 
but he's not a cheese-eating lizard. You've got to get that sort of tweaked. I don't actually, but I do believe in Jesus. Well, actually you don't. (laughs) You believe in something that you're calling Jesus. That was kind of the tone as Peter talks about the Messiah. Peter says, I do. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. I get it. I see it. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yeah, shut up. Don't talk like that with other people. Why? That's where we want to start this morning. And that's where the the whole idea sort of wraps up here. Who do we really believe in? Who are we actually giving our life over to? Is it the Jesus in the Bible? Or is it gods of comfort, money, security? What is your heart driven after, really? That's where we're at. So Messiah, we we sort of teased it last week, and today I want to flesh it out more. What would Peter, a first century Jew, be thinking when he used the word Messiah? It's clearly not what Jesus has in mind. So I'm going to read you a few texts from that day. These aren't in the scriptures, but they're in the kinds of scriptures, if you will, the books and the different pieces of literature that are circulating in that day. And I think they help you to see what somebody like Peter would almost definitely have been thinking when he used the word Messiah. Here's here's a paragraph out of the Sibylline Oracles. Now, this is a collection of texts that come from all different times. But there's three chapters in there which come from about the first, second century B.C., so the, the years leading up to when Jesus comes. Here's an idea from it about what it'll look like when Messiah comes. The kings of the nations shall throw themselves against this land, this Israelite land, bringing retribution on themselves. They shall seek to ravage the shrine of the mighty God and of the noblest men whensoever they come to the land. Okay, so kings of foreign lands are coming to Israel and they're surrounding the shrine, I think the temple, the the holy place of God. They surround it. In a ring around the city, the accursed kings shall place each one on his throne with his infidel people next to him. And then, with a mighty voice, God shall speak to all the undisciplined, empty-minded people, and judgment shall come upon them from the mighty God, and all shall perish at the hand of the eternal. Okay? This is going to be what the Messiah does. Another book for Ezra, or Esdras. Then, when the nations hear his voice, all the nations shall leave their own lands and the warfare that they have had against one another, and an innumerable multitude shall be gathered together, as you saw, wishing to come and conquer him. There will be All of the lands will be coming in to fight, and Messiah will destroy them. The Jewish philosopher, very famous in their day, Philo, he says this, the Messiah was going to take the field and make war and destroy great and populous nations. Messiah, he's coming. Go back to 4th Ezra again. The Messiah will denounce them for their ungodliness for their wickedness, and he will display before them their contemptuous dealings. And when he has reproved them all, he will destroy them. Okay? This is the language of Messiah. One more. There's lots of them from this day all over the place. This one's out of First Enoch. And it shall come to pass in those days that none shall be saved, either by gold or silver. None shall be able to escape, and there shall be no more iron for war. Nor shall one clothe oneself with a breastplate. Bronze shall be of no service. Tin shall not be esteemed, and lead shall not be desired. And all the things shall be destroyed from the surface of the earth. Okay? So, Peter has just watched Jesus do several pretty intense miracles, and he has this epiphany moment. He says, wow. You're the one, the anointed one we've been waiting for. You're this guy. 
You're the guy who's going to finally come and blast the enemy. This is awesome. And Jesus says, don't talk like that. To sum up Peter's idea, I think, the Messiah was going to be the most destructive conqueror in history. He was going to be the most destructive conqueror in all of human history. His enemies would not only buckle and bend under his power, they would be obliterated, literally, into, into total extinction. And this was a really glorious kind of thing. People, Jews like these disciples, including Peter, they rightly loved Yahweh. And they wanted to see his good spread throughout. But in the places that it didn't, they wanted the power of God to totally smash the enemy. Now it's interesting, because we read the Old Testament and we say, well, they're not that crazy. God talks like that, doesn't he, through the prophets, coming in and laying to waste once and for all, all evil. But it's very interesting, there's lots of the Old Testament that they were also missing. Some of it we'll read later on this morning. Now in your culture, when you're sitting there uh, as, a, as a first century Palestinian Jew, you have this encroachment coming from Rome. Uh, they, the the uh, pagan, what we would probably see as an ultra-liberal way of, of living, is starting to infect the nation, the households, and, the, and people are getting really bent out of shape about that, and they want that Messiah to come even more. A powerful judge and ruler who would finally set the enemy to rest and raise up the good ones into a glorious life, free from the kinds of suffering and decay that come from evildoers and outsiders. So you see a little bit of a glimpse into the mindset there too. The evil is from them, so God needs to take them out. That's what needs to happen here. Jesus is very interesting, isn't he? He comes in and he says, yeah, yeah nobody likes evil. You might be a little bit off base if you think it's just in them. I'm coming to teach you something you need to know about yourselves. The problems within Israel, we, we, they were thinking, were caused by this uncleanliness, which is why it's so weird when Jesus goes and deals with unclean people and then loves them and shows them grace and forgiveness. It's just like, what are you doing? It's just the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. So with that backdrop, we, we pick it up in Mark 8, verse 31. That's where we'll start today. We'll pick it up in Mark 8, verse 31, and this is right after, right after Peter has said, you're the Messiah, thinking along these lines we've seen. And then Jesus says, you be quiet about that, Peter, and here's what he says next. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the experts in the law, the scribes, and then be killed and raised. After three days, he spoke openly or, or plainly or clearly about this. Wow, okay. Imagine Peter's shock, right? The glorious warrior who will finally lay to waste the enemy says, Here's the deal, Peter. The Son of Man must suffer. That Messiah must come and suffer to the point of death. Can you imagine what's happening in Peter's head and mind? It's like inviting a plumber to come over to your house, you know, to fix the sink. He comes over and he's like, I don't work with sinks or pipes. Like, well, what, what do you call yourself a plumber for, dude? Like, <laughs> why did you come over here? I need a plumber, you know? He's like, you're the, you're the Messiah? You're not going to kill all the bad guys? What are you talking about? And more than that, you're going to suffer? It's just incomprehensible to him. It does not make any kind of sense. You're the anointed one that Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, that all the prophets talked about? The ultimate power against God's enemies? And let's get this straight. You're, you're not going to bring glory to God? Oh, I didn't say that, Peter. 
I never said I'm not going to bring glory to God. Yes, you did. You just said that you're going to die a humiliating death. How's that glory? How's this the greatness of God on display, utterly extinguishing his opposers? How are you going to do that if you die? You know, you're right. The things that you call greatness are not the same things that I consider to be great. To the mainstream mind or the average concerns of mankind, my plans are downright stupid. They're ridiculous. That's fair, Peter. But if you understand God's concerns, then you can see how this is pure glory. Powerful glory. Dude, (laughs) come on. You're not even being realistic here. This is impossible. That does not make any sense, Jesus. Seriously. Listen to me. Verse 32, the last half of it. We'll pick it up right in the middle. So Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Now this isn't, he took him aside and he said, hey, I, I just want to ask you a couple questions. I don't think you're quite right, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't taking him aside to sort of carry on a, a, no, he's rebuking him, which is, you're wrong, you need to change. That's always an interesting posture before the almighty God, you know, like, <laughs> you're wrong. All right. You're wrong, is what Peter is telling him. The things you have said are incorrect, Jesus. Verse 33, but after turning and looking at the, the, the disciples, I like this little editorial comment from Mark. You know, here's Jesus, and he's like, he looks at the disciples, and then he looks at Peter, and it says, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the concerns of God but on the concerns of people. What a statement. This is coming from Jesus who is full of grace and truth. To hear him talk like this, to call Peter Satan. Right there we might say, how is that loving and gracious? Goodness, Jesus, that's intense. And I mean, that, it is what it is to us in modern America. First century Jew being called Satan. Get behind me. Satan? That's a huge statement. How is that loving? I would say it's not. That's not gracious. It's not loving at all. Not one bit, according to us. We've failed to discover what love and grace are half the time, according to the one who actually invented both. God is love. He displays grace. And then we sort of get this co-opted view of both and we we say, how does God fit into my understanding of love and grace? I think Jesus says, let me show you what real love is. If you want to learn about real love, you've got to learn about it from me rather than from your digital screens and your magazines. Because I'm not going to fit into that kind of mindset. What can you and I learn in this moment? This is an absolute hinge pin moment in the story that Mark is telling. It's, it's absolutely a hinge pin. From here, I said before, the whole gospel will start to change. It's right here that things start to move. What do we learn here? I think first, we learn that you can mean well and you can think that you love God while you're living as an instrument of Satan. That's a hard thing to say. And it's a really scary thing to to sort of engage with as a person. I mean well, I think I love God, I I believe in Jesus. That's, That's Peter all the way through, is it not? Peter's not trying to be malicious here. He's not trying to tear down Jesus. He loves him. He doesn't want to see his friend die. He doesn't want to see the good name of God's Messiah tainted through suffering and death. And so he expresses, like, no, no, no. And Jesus says, I don't care how well-meaning you are. You are in league. You are now a mouthpiece for the enemy. You don't even know it. Ironically, that's the problem. Peter means well, but he's trying to fit Jesus into his life. 
and into his own way of thinking. Rather than stepping into Jesus' life and learning Jesus' way of thinking. And so this leaves Peter feeling very good about the idea of Jesus that he prefers. He's filled with a love for that Jesus. He wants to be a part of that Jesus' team. I mean, he's following him all over the place. And yet, however much Peter loves that Jesus, it isn't the real Jesus. And while Peter thinks that he's a voice of reason and wisdom, he's actually not at all. And he presents to Jesus, Jesus' second major temptation. We'll get to that in a second. Mark intends for each of us to look at Peter here and wonder where we are. I know that for sure. This gospel, the way it's written, is meant to impact our heart and soul. It is not a a little collection of interesting factoids that we can chit-chat about. It's the power of God in this story, and it is meant to bring right to the fore, whoa, where am I? Am I like Peter? Meaning well, loving Jesus, and yet totally so far off base, I don't even see him. Do I believe that I'm serving him and doing all the things that I have grown accustomed to doing for my personal Lord? Well, Jesus is actually saying to me something similar to Peter. Get behind me. You think you know me, but you don't have a clue. You proudly say that you believe in me, but you don't. You believe in yourself. You trust in your own ways of thinking. And when you pray to me, you're not praying to communicate with me and learn about my way and my will. You're praying to me to tell me about how you would prefer the world to be and ask me to make that happen for you. This is the language of last week as well. Do we actually love Jesus or do we love something much more than him and we see Jesus as the means to achieve that better and greater end. That's idolatry, because that's what you're worshiping, not Jesus. Mark 8 hits us. I used to work on a golf course, okay? All through high school, I worked on a golf course in the grounds crew. I loved it. It was fantastic. One day, I'm out changing the pin on, on hole number two. And I'm just, you know, when you're changing the pins, it's this weird tool with a cup that you got to stick it down. So I'm sitting there, and I'm jamming this thing down into the green. Whack! I just get blasted. Some dude's teeing off on hole number 15. Straight off the tee, never yelled for, nothing. Just a direct from the club to my head. Boom! And I just drop to my knees, and I'm <laughs> the stars and whatever, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this hurts. I think that that's what Mark 8 does to us. <laughs> I really do. When you're really reading it for real and you see the impact of this, it's just like, boom. And once the star's clear, you've got some questions to really ask yourself. Am I listening to Jesus and learning about real life from Jesus who is the way of life? He is the truth of life. He is life itself. Or am I learning about real life from the world And then I'm adding some Jesus in so I can get all that I want. All of the pleasures of heaven. Peter encountered the real Jesus, but that wasn't enough. Peter believed in Jesus, but that wasn't enough. Why? Because Peter's heart was still clinging to something else that was not God. And that meant that he couldn't see God. And so when Jesus tells him this is what's going to happen, it is incomprehensible to Peter. I think like you and me, Peter wanted the good life, but he wanted it on his terms, according to his own concerns. And from that angle, the Messiah or the Lord and Savior was just a provision of life, not life itself. Now that's an interesting question sparked right there. When I meet Jesus and he challenges me and he says, Ben, do you want to live for real? Am I seeing the next step as one where I receive life? 
Or is the next step one where I have to step into life? Those seem similar, but they're pretty different, aren't they? How do I frame up life from God? Do I see it as something I just received from him? Or is it, is it a life that I have to step into? I think we can thoughtfully respond by saying, surely it's both. Not one of us in this room asked to be born, right? We have life that's given to us from an outside source. So, so we receive life in that way. And yet the kind of life that Jesus invites us into seems a lot less about receiving and a lot, and I mean a lot, a lot more about entering into or stepping into. When I receive life, when I think of it that way purely, it seems kind of like a Christmas present. Somebody gives it to me and I get it and it's for me. When I step into life, I see it as a new way of existing or a new way to be human. And now I'm not looking about what I've just gotten for me so that I can have it for me and it's all mine. Instead, if I think about it in terms of stepping into life, then I start to say, who's guiding this thing? It's a new way of life. Who writes the rules? Who sets the vision for me? And of course, that's Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life, says Jesus, and nobody comes to the Father. Notice, nobody actively does that. Nobody comes to the Father. He's, he's implying you have to go to the Father. There's something here to be done. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Early Christians didn't call themselves Christians as much as they called themselves followers of the way. It was a way of life to step into, and it had everything to do with the way that Jesus lives. Now, that sounds pretty nice. Well, good. We could step into the way that Jesus lives. That's a fantastic statement if I still get to invent my own Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Consider for a moment the temptations of Jesus. If I just want to step into Jesus' life and it's a Jesus that I determine and I define, then it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. And it certainly is not going to include suffering and death. Because I don't, I don't know about you, I generally prefer to not suffer or die. And I certainly don't want to do both of them. So I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to write a description of Jesus and his job uh, in a way that is really palatable for me. But consider these temptations that Jesus has to suffer and beat for our sake. This is pretty interesting. I want to, sh I want to go through the three major temptations in the Gospel of Mark to help us see how Jesus, as a real human being, is fighting this fight that he calls all of us to fight as well. The first one we saw already. It was right after he's baptized, the heavens open, God says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and what happens immediately after that? Jesus goes off into the wilderness and Satan attacks him. He comes after him and he tempts him. He tempts him and he says, hey, why don't you use God's name and power to do something really great? Make these worthless stones into something that could nourish your body. That's a pretty good thing to do. And Jesus says, no, I'm not doing it because that's what you want, not what God wants. The second major temptation of Jesus is right here in this moment. It's interesting, isn't it? Peter has just revealed you are the Messiah, not unlike God saying you're my beloved son. And what happens right next is Jesus is attacked. Yes, by Peter, but Jesus attributes the attack to Satan, doesn't he? And what is the great temptation? If not, to be that version of Messiah that not just Peter wants, everybody wants. All the religious power brokers, all the people of Israel want a Messiah to come and do those things we talked about at the front end of the sermon. What a temptation it would be for Jesus to step into that. Remember before they wanted him to be king? I mean, we can't take lightly the temptation that he is suffering under. To step into full kingship in this world, to blast the enemies, 
to be the reigning glorious ruler of this entire nation and eradicate it. I mean, that is a temptation. And when Peter says, hey man, you're not going to do that. You don't need to do that. That's cray cray. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, you are being Satan right now. He's very tempted. The third temptation we see later in the garden where he says, I don't want this cup of suffering. Please take it from me, meaning I don't want to die, meaning I'm a human being and I have an innate desire to survive. His temptation is to prolong his life as long as possible, whether it's God's will or not. But he resists the temptation and he says, I don't want to do that, but your will is more important than mine, so let it be done. Your will, not my will. In all three of those cases, the temptation is to do something that seems extremely reasonable to the average human mind. Use your divine power to make a positive difference. Rocks are not as awesome as bread. Stand up, the second one, stand up in the face of evil. Refuse to allow it to continue. Use the resources God gave you to fight evil with power. That's what you got to do. Defeat the enemy. Don't love the enemy. It's ridiculous. And then survive as long as possible. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, your, your, your best win in this world is to keep that heart beating as long as you can. I don't say that and say, what the heck, Jesus? That's crazy. How could you? How could you want to survive longer? How could you be tempted to wield the power of God's goodness to fight evil, you know? How could you? No, we look at that and we say, yeah, those all seem like very reasonable things to do. So what was the problem? Each one of those was a temptation to act in a way that says to God, God, I totally love you, man. I think you're super great. But in this scenario, you're asking me to do something that just doesn't make any sense. I know you think it's going to help somehow, but believe me, I know it won't. You know, that's the temptation for Jesus, to sort of take on that posture. And that's a familiar posture. Each temptation is for Jesus to take his own personal way to define his relationship with God on his terms. Each temptation is to close himself off from the Father and to turn inward and to follow his own heart, to believe in his own wisdom. And Jesus resists each one of them. And he says to you and me, follow me. Let's, let's bend our will to God instead of to this world. And his success was not easy. He says to us, expect great difficulty and suffering. You can expect it, because I know. A good leader leads through the things that he wants to ask other people to join him in, him or her. Jesus is suffering and being tempted, and he says, you've got to come with me through this. It was the most hard-won battle in the history of humankind. Jesus, totally resisting that temptation successfully and refusing to sin. He picked the greatest war, the greatest victory of anything anybody's ever done. It's not as great as that. This was the most hard-won battle, and it was a war that waged in Jesus, not just at the cross. It waged in him every single day of his life. This is another mistake we often make. Sometimes we make the mistake of believing that Jesus' suffering was really condensed into the Passion Week. That's where he suffered the most. I used to think things like, well, you know, Jesus, he seems pretty cool. He's sort of walking around Israel. He likes to hang out, especially on seashores, it seems, or that's where I heard most sermons from, the seashore, you know. So he's hanging out on seashores, eating lunch, just sort of chilling with the disciples, having some impromptu classes, you know, from time to time out in the farm fields. And then it got real bad when he had to go to the cross, for sure. But otherwise, it's like, no. No, what are you reading? Jesus' suffering was lifelong. It wasn't just a rough week. This is a man who prays so fervently that blood drops from the pores of his skin. 
He's a man whom the Bible frequently shows as deeply broken in his spirit, deeply grieved in his soul, bitterly weeping over things like people dying, being demon-possessed, being broken by this jacked-up world. Jesus was seriously impacted by that and suffered the temptations we just talked about. This is a man who really we don't see pursuing creature comforts in this world. He has these interesting statements. People, I want to follow you, Jesus. It's going to be great. He says, I don't even have a den. Foxes have a den. I don't even have a nest. Birds have a nest. I don't have a place to lay my head. You sure you want to follow? Well, that's pretty good. I think Jesus sought comfort, just like you and I did. Of course we do. Every pomegranate that he cracked open or tilapia that he roasted brought him comfort. Every roof over his head brought him comfort. But here's the difference. Jesus sought comfort so that he could bring well-being to others. The things he received from God are always in the framework of, you have given me this so that I can be this to other people. It was never, thank you for giving me this. Things are easier now and more comfortable for me. Oh, I love this. It's all about me, you and me. Personal, it's just us. Whatever these idiots want, I don't care. Just give me the things I want. Oh, yeah, that wasn't Jesus' attitude at all. So yes, like all human beings, you seek the comfort of a meal or shelter or companionship, but he always did so with the mindset of God is strengthening me to help and sacrifice my life to spend it for the well-being of other people. Jesus had to say no to himself. Isn't that interesting? He had to say no to himself in order to step into that real life of God. And his example is inspiring to us. All human beings look at self-sacrifice and they see beauty. I don't care what religion you come from or if you're totally atheist. There's something that happens in our heart and soul when we see another self-sacrificing for the well-being of somebody else. But just when we start to get really inspired and, and feeling warm about that idea, like, oh, that's really good, about how great Jesus is, right when we want to kind of sing that happy song and then sort of bask in the calm sunshine of a good American Sunday afternoon, Jesus adds one more note. He says, if you pursue yourself, if you try to save your life instead of spending it for the sake of other people, then like Peter who pursued his interests over God's, you will be in league with Satan, even if you have a really great Christian persona to show the world. You won't be in league with me, no matter how many times you tell yourself or other people that you believe in Jesus. Hear it in his own words. This is where he calls people to union with him, stepping into real life, union with his very way of life is what he calls us to. We'll read the last bit of the passage here in Mark 8 through 34. Then Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples. So he's got the disciples there, but there's a wider crowd. He says, everybody come on in, gather around. And he said to them, if anybody wants to be my follower, he must say no to himself. He must take up his cross or he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses, whoever spends his life for my sake and for the gospel, he will save it. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? And what can a person even give in exchange for his life? For if anybody's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. It's important right there because Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you're gonna have to suffer with me and, and, and I'm not gonna tell you why, just do it. Just Nike, Nike this thing, just do it. Just suffer, 
No, he says, the suffering we must endure, I'll lead the charge, you're going to follow me, we're going to endure it, but it's not all for naught. Believe you me, you're going to see this kingdom that we are suffering for, you're going to see this kingdom come with power, some of you in this crowd, before we even die. And you say, wait a minute, what in the heck? What is he talking about there? Was he saying that some of the people standing around there in 30-something A.D. would see the second coming? Because if so, then Jesus isn't very good at prophecy. And that would really complicate things for all of us, you know. No, I think it's not a reference to the second coming. So I'll touch on this, and then we'll go back a couple verses. It's not a reference to the second coming. Just sort of do the math and sit where he is. He's in Palestine in the first century. He has only gone outside of the borders of his country once in a story. And even then, just a few miles past to Tyre and Sidon. This country's at that point a little bit smaller than New Jersey. So you think about the size of the earth and its population, just a little tiny spot. It's not that significant. It was strange for Jesus to talk about world conquest when he'd hardly even left that little tiny country. Remember, there's no phones, there's no internet, there's no way to, for news to travel quick. So if you're in the crowd, you're like, how is that gonna happen? Worse than that, even in that small country, he made everybody in his own religion super mad at him, and the other power brokers were super mad at him. The best thing he escapes out of this whole deal with is a death sentence, <laughs> you know? And he's like, believe me, it's gonna be awesome. They're like, what are you talking about? Any reasonable human being knew with the most basic understanding that that was not going to happen for Christianity. It's just it had no possible future. But Jesus didn't limit himself to the human understanding of how things work. Just consider what does happen. Not quite 30 years later, Christianity has swept through Asia Minor. Antioch becomes a massive Christian church. Christianity had already begun to flourish within Egypt. The Christians were strong in Alexandria, North Africa. It had crossed the sea. It had come to Rome. It had swept throughout Greece. Like a dam breaking loose, Christianity was pouring out over the entire Middle East and Mediterranean world. It was absolutely shocking and true that in the lifetime of many of the people standing in that crowd with Jesus, they had seen the kingdom come into the world with power. Jesus was 100% right when he said what he said. This kingdom was coming with strength and verve. And what was this kingdom? Well, it certainly was not a kingdom in the sense of world domination. It was not about using God's name to pursue self-interest or trying to take countries back with power or even trying to figure out ways to prolong life and live comfortably to survive longer. No, it was people, men and women and children, who said, yes, I will follow you, and I am willing to say no to myself and yes to God in every possible way. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever spends it for my sake and for the gospel, will save it. Can you see from his words? Can you see from his heart how Jesus never came to this world to make our lives a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable? He came to challenge you and me to greatness. He came to challenge us to greatness, to start to think with the mind of God and the concerns of God, the greatness and glory of God, instead of the myopic and petty little treasures and pleasures of this world. He didn't come in saying, I'm going to make those little petty things you love more for you. He said, you want to step into something far better. I think it is the fool and the weak, and the self-obsessed person who sees greatness in a life of ease and comfort. 
and men and women, my friends here, that is the story that my nation and my culture has sold to me. The greatest people are the ones, the ones who make it are the ones who have the most pleasure and safety and security and fun. And Jesus says, I'm going to call you to something far greater. I think it is the wise and the strong and the Jesus-focused human being who sees greatness in a life of eternal glory with God, eternal beauty in his kingdom, eternal goodness that is free from sin and death. And this greatness comes at a very high cost. And that cost is our own daily death. Dying to my desire to save my life by spending every moment of my free time on myself. Thinking that my comfort idol will make me better, richer, fuller, if I can just find more ease and comfort. Dying to my desire to save my own life for me by believing that I am the best and the smartest person. Therefore, I must win every argument. I must have the last say. I must be the one who is known as the right one. I have to die to myself in that way to allow other people to be free, to think, to speak. I can die to myself, step into Jesus' life, sacrifice my, my rightness, my popular rightness for others' well-being. Dying to my desire to save my life by preserving all of my money and my property for myself and instead taking up Jesus' life of outpouring generosity. Jesus says, you've got to die to yourself and your obsessions with money if you want to walk with me for real. Dying to my desire to save myself by keeping my reputation in this world acceptable. You are not going to be acceptable in this world for much longer if you keep calling yourself a Christian. If you keep saying, I believe the gospel, I believe God is real, and I'm living for him. That, that sticks you with stupid human being t-shirt in our world. And I don't want to have a t-shirt that says stupid human being. I just don't want to wear that. And yet, Jesus says, you've got to die to that desire to protect your reputation. You're going to be despised and dismayed. It's going to happen. It does Dying to my desire to save my life by using God's name and his power to make things happen according to my perspective, even if they're great, whether it's turning a stone into bread or changing the world in the way that I want to see it changed. I have to die to that and take up Jesus' life. Dying to my desire to save my life by lashing out with power over other free human beings, fighting my enemies with power rather than with love and forgiveness, seeking national pride and power over the humble glory of God which calls me to take up a cross, not a spear, and dying to my desire to save myself by doing whatever it takes to prolong personal health and life with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I can say, I don't want this cup of suffering. God, please, take it from me. But to save our lives, we must also say no to ourselves. Not my will be done, but your will be done. So I think we can learn from Peter's huge mistake here. Mark chapter 8 can really hit us like a golf ball on green number 2. And I think we can declare, I am not afraid to follow this Jesus who carried grief, who bore sorrow, who was ridiculed by human beings so much so that they esteemed him not, who despised him and considered him afflicted as though he was not loved by God but reviled by God. That's what Jesus walked through. He says, you're going to have to do that. And if that's a problem for you, if that's going to make you ashamed of me, you're going to have a rude awakening when we meet face to face. 
His language here is very intense. He says, they'll have no place with me in the future. The lives that you and I have right now are not for saving. We're not trying to save our lives for ourselves. We're not here to get and preserve as much of our money, as much of our stuff, as much of our reputation, as much of our health and wealth as possible. Rather than getting as much life as possible for ourselves on our terms, we step into Jesus' life. We spend our lives for his sake and for the gospel's sake so that we can save them. And indeed, he saves us as we do. He rescues us right now today, tomorrow on Monday, every day. He continues to, as we die to ourselves, we say no to ourselves, and boldly, fearlessly join with him. Pray with me. Jesus, when we look at the amount of courage that you must have had to do what you did, it's so overwhelming that it doesn't compute, and we tend to just rewrite your story in a way that's more palatable to us. When I read this text in Mark 8, when I take very seriously the things that, that I see in the New Testament about what you did and felt and accomplished and so forth, Jesus, I just, I don't know how you pulled it off. Your courage, your fearlessness, your trust in the Father was so intense that you lived an unbelievable life. I don't know how you can wisely even think we could live it with you. It seems impossible on so many levels, but we also believe that you're wise. We don't think that you're stupid. We think that you're really intelligent and you have called us to do this. I pray, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit that you would freshly wake us up to this high calling that in this, in this lukewarm sort of frog in the kettle scenario in America where we have become bent toward money and comfort and the pleasures of this world, help us to see anew how you, how you remove us from this death context and bring us into true life. Help us to see how we don't need these things that promise us things they can't promise and to instead trust your promise, which is the promise of life forever, free from brokenness in a glorious kingdom. And help us to never, ever forget about your afflictions and sufferings that you endured to make it happen for us. God, we love you. Jesus, thank you for coming and saving our lives and giving life to us. Help us to step into your way of life each day. Amen.